right? Yep. Everybody likes to talk about money, right? So this, this is a little lecture series I put together called Let's Talk About Money. Because even though I think most people understand what money is, I don't think a lot of people think about it in abstract terms or think about it, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. I mentioned this maybe in this class, it might have been another class. I said that people grow up in a consumer mentality. I get money. I'm, I know that my belief with this money is that I go exchange it for something I want or need. That's what people are programmed to think about money, right? So you ne you, if you grow up thinking this about money, you, you, most people never change that, that mentality. They think, you know, oh, I get money from either my parents as a child or I earn it as an adult. Take that money and I exchange it for food and clothing, shelter and iPads and phones and watches and all these cool things. But I never shift that paradigm unless you make a conscious effort to shift because money is actually a tool and you can use that tool to purchase things or you can use it for other things. And we're going to talk about the other things in this lecture series. And it's going to be something we talk about over the course of the semester because there's a lot of things to talk about with money. And my main objective for this is to educate you in relation to learning about management because management uses money as a tool as well. But uh, it's a very powerful tool if you kind of change the way you think about it a little bit. So what is money? It's a medium of exchange. Just like I mentioned, you can get this dollar, trade it for a Coca-Cola, you know, pay somebody a dollar to massage your neck for one minute, right? <laughs> you seen you ever seen yeah, you've seen that in the World Series of Poker where they pay people a dollar a minute to Yeah, or has anybody ever been to the mall where they, they get like a masseuse to massage your neck as a dollar a minute? You ever done this? Anybody? Have you done it, Scott? Yeah, the chair, right? So it's usually about a dollar a minute. That's what it breaks down to. So so is money a store of value? If I if I say I'm gonna take this money and just hang on to it for a while, does it retain that buying power? It can. Okay. Sure. So let's say if I take a $100 bill and I put it under my mattress for 20 years, what do you think is going to happen to that $100 bill? If I pull it out, I can still use it, right? Yeah. But what, what has happened to it? Has anything changed with the money? Does it still look like a $100 bill? No, but other money has been printed off. Other money has been printed, right? So there might be newer versions, but it's still a $100 bill and still honored by the government. So what, what else has changed? Oh, inflation, yeah. So let me say this. So let's imagine that, let's say instead of 20 years ago, let's go 100 years back. Imagine what it was like in the year 1919 and you had a $100 bill in your pocket, right? Think about that. You were big balling, right? You can just, $100 bill could do a lot of damage in 1919. I mean, you're going around buying candy bars for a penny, right? That kind of stuff. So uh, money is actually not a great store of value. If I go and say I'm going to save money, and you just start putting money in the bank and you never do anything with it and you're drawing 1% interest maybe or less than 1%, you're actually losing money year after year. After 10 years, if you put that $100 bill under the bed and just leave it, it's probably going to be worth about 70 to 80 cents in buying power or 70 to 80% buying power. So it's 70, 80 bucks is all you're going to be able to get in same value. And you're thinking, well, how does that work? It's still a $100 bill. I don't get it. The cost of living went up. The cost of living went up, right. When I was growing up and I first turned you know, 16, my, the gas that I was putting in the car was 88 cent a gallon. Now it's 2.30 today. So it's, four, it's gone up three times in, in this short, I guess it's been 24 years since I turned 16 almost. 
So in 24 years, it's gone up threefold. And so bread used to be, you know, very cheap. Same bread now is about threefold, you know, things like that. So why did the price of those items go up? Was it that they went up or was it that your buying power for your dollars went down? So now they need more of them, right? So I got an example about that I'll talk about in a minute. So let's talk about the history of money very briefly. So money's been around for a long time, thousands of years. Back in the day before we had paper money, they used all kinds of things. They used stones, they used shells, they used uh, animals, cattle, livestock. Um, they also started to use gold and coins and silver and coins and different metals to represent value. You know, and so I'm trading my gold uh, for something equally of value. They, they determined a way to value things based on scarcity and demand. And so for a long time, we went on this thing called the gold standard where we, our money was equal to an equal amount of gold or silver in the bank. We could take our dollars, trade it into the bank, and get an equal amount of gold back. And that gold standard allowed for a more limited supply of money. And so we went off the gold standard in, I believe, the 30s or 40s. Um, and we, the reason we went away from the gold standard was, no, I'm sorry, uh, there was gold confiscation in the 30s and 40s, but we actually went off the gold standard under Nixon. And the reason why we went off the gold standard is so the government can play with the monetary supply more freely and do things they needed to do, uh, that they felt they needed to do in order to uh, expand you know, the government's reach and buying power. And so now we have, we don't have the gold standard anymore. You can't take a dollar and trade it for a dollar worth of gold. You could, I guess, if you're getting micro amount, but there's no backing by that money. The only thing that backs modern money is the government's decree that it's valuable. And we have something now called fiat currency. Fiat means by decree. So when you hold a dollar bill in your hand or a hundred dollar bill, whatever it may be, you're saying that it's, it's, it has value because the government is backing it up and says it has value. And so because of that, people believe it's valuable. And so what does money do? We've talked about it a little bit already. We use that money as a medium of exchange, but it is a poor store of value. So holding money for a long period of time is probably not wise. You want to have a certain amount to live, maybe a small amount of savings in cash, but we'll talk about some other ways you can put that money to work for you. So why do people desire money? What do you think? Why is money so desirable? To get what they want and need, right? What What do you think, Lewis? To get what they want and need, okay. So... Attributes of money. These are six attributes, and there may be more, but we'll talk about these six very briefly. Money is portable. It's easy to carry. You, know, you can take a lot of cash in a small you know, bag or briefcase and move it around. It's fungible. You've probably never heard that word before, but fungible means interchangeable. If I have a dollar bill and I have another dollar bill, I can change those, and they're the same thing. You know, they're interchangeable. It's accepted, people accept the dollar bill as the world reserve currency. So you can take a dollar bill anywhere around the world and it's recognized. Hey, this is, this is legit US good currency if it's not counterfeit. It's immutable, means that it's unchanging. There's a lot of anti-counterfeiting measures in currencies and especially in the US, US dollar. Um, and we want it to be hard to counterfeit so people trust it. If it was easy to counterfeit the dollar or any of, those, any of the currency, uh, don't you think people would start to be really skeptical about taking bills? Is this really legit or not? I know probably 10 or 15 years ago now, there was a scare about $50 bills being counterfeit. Do you remember this, Scott? Yeah, yeah 50s, that was the thing. 
And I heard about it probably in 2007, 8, 9 range. Um, and for even to this day now, people are skeptical over 50s, yeah. are they not? It's hard to get them and hard to find people that are accepted. Right. Um, the bank I went to recently gave me a 50, and I stared at that thing for a long time just because you don't see them that often, number one. Number two, it actually kind of looks fake, the actual 50 that they have now, the you new 50. You don't see it that often yet. Yeah, it looks and feels different. And so you kind of question, is this thing legit? And then when I paid, I actually used that 50 yesterday uh, to get some gas. I went to a gas station and said, all I got is a 50. And I felt weird giving it to her because I thought, you know, well, I got a well, not necessarily. I said, all I got is 50. Is that okay? And she said, yeah, but she sure did mark it she to make sure. She spent some time looking. Right, yeah, she, I know she marked it. She did it right there. Yeah, this is this legit. Well, people just don't see 50s that often. That's probably, aside from like the $2 bill, that's probably the, the scarcest money that we see now. And so, uh, immutable, scarce, limited supply, or is it? You know, quantitative easing, something I mentioned earlier, there is not necessarily a scarce supply of money or a limited supply. And so, um, the last thing is sovereign. It's, it's, it's backed by the government. That's what gives it its ability to be trusted. Hey, the government's backing it up, it must be good. So these are some of the attributes of money, money portable, fungible, accepted, immutable, scarce, and sovereign. And so let's talk about investing money. I know you've all heard about it. Some of you might have already invested some money, um, but I want you to be comfortable with the idea of investing money. More people need to get comfortable with it. Your generation, I'm talking to the millennials, sorry Scott, not you, not you Kevin, sorry. But younger generations need to get very comfortable with the idea of investing and saving money because so many people are not. And it's, this is a good thing for me too, and I'll tell you why, not for, not, if I can get you guys to become comfortable with investing in your friends and family, it helps society. Because what's gonna happen if we don't start investing as a country is that when I get old, uh, 60 or 70% of my, my cohorts in my age group are going to be extremely poor. And so I don't want to live in a country where everybody's broken and then I've got money from savings and investing. It doesn't, it's not good. You know, I need everybody to thrive. And so uh, if, if everybody around me is poor, I'm going to feel terrible that I didn't do more to help everybody. So that being said, um, the idea of investing money is to put your money to work for you. An example is a money market. Um, a friend of mine, uh, we decided to start a small company. It's, it's, it's not officially launched yet, but we said in order to start this thing, we're going to start saving money because I believe the, in the power of savings. So every month, he and I meet for a quote-unquote corporate meeting, and we both put up $130 on the table, and we go deposit that into a bank account. And we've been doing that for four months. We've already got $1,000 put up between us. That's, between That's just between me and another friend. And so in, two, in, in four more months, we'll have two grand by Christmas. Four more months after that, we'll have three grand. And so the idea of saving, and it's only cost me $130. And guess what? If it doesn't work out, if we said this is not going to work, we could just split it up and take our money back, and we've lost nothing. In fact, I opened a money market account to do this, and we're drawing almost 2% interest in that account to save that money. You want to get a return on your money and get the most return for the least amount of risk. So there is a very broad, uh, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for, continuum of risk when it comes to investing money. You can go invest in a diamond mine in Africa, probably a very risky way to treat your money, or you can go to something very conservative like a savings account where you get almost no return. And so like, there's a bunch of stuff in between, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. We'll talk about that. 
investing is how the wealthy not only get wealthy, it's how they stay wealthy. And so we all, when we go to work, we're paying roughly 30% taxes, you know, roughly. That's what, that's what the government is, is charging you for payroll tax. You know, some more, some less. Uh, but when the wealthy have money, they don't work. They don't get an income tax. They get capital gains tax, which is around 15%. And so they're getting half taxed on millions of dollars versus what we're getting 30% on 20, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars a year, whatever we make. And so uh, this is how the wealthy stay wealthy is through that type of mentality. Investing duplicates your efforts. I can work 60 hours a week, but after that I collapse, right? You can't work for so much, but if you invest your money and have money working for you, you know, if I do open that company with my friends, then you know we'll have income coming in on a monthly basis, even if it's a hundred bucks. Who cares? That's a hundred bucks bucks that I didn't have to go out and work an hour for, right? right? Lewis knows what I'm talking about. So if I go buy a duplex and I move my family to one side, and I move a family to the other side that pays rent and pays the mortgage on that, that's money that's coming in that's building equity in that building that I didn't work for, right? It's just an investment. And so you can only work so many hours in a day, but investing allows you to have work being done on your behalf. So if I go start a, uh, a subway, as an example, uh, I can go home at night at 7 o'clock and then my employees will close up shop and they're making money for me on my behalf without me having to have me there physically doing that effort. There's lots of ways to invest, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, businesses, savings accounts, commodities like gold and silver. Um, and we're going to talk about each one of those in more detail. The first two things we're going to talk about, though, are savings and interest. So you've probably heard the expression, live below your means, right? If you're not living below your means, you're doing it wrong. And what I mean by that is if you're taking on debt to live above your means, you know, if you want to go out shopping and just doing a bunch of things that are putting you in a financial crunch, you, it, eventually that stops. Eventually you can't get any more lines of credit. Eventually uh, the, the chickens come home to roost, so to speak, and that lifestyle just implodes on you. And... Uh, you realize, man, I got to change my ways. I got to do something different. So living below your means means that if you make like thousand dollars a month or two thousand or three thousand, whatever it is, you figure out a budget that allow you to save at least ten percent of that. That's the bare bones minimum. You know, like uh, the advice a lot of financial advisors, and I'm not a financial advisor, just just providing information. But I've learned a lot about it over the years. But the advice the advice I'm getting from financial advisors that I read says that 15% kind of needs to be the new threshold. Really vigorously get into the idea of saving. I know this is a hard thing to do, but it's an absolute necessity if you want to be financially successful. Uh, I'm seeing this in real time play out, guys. My mom and dad just retired. Uh, my mom was a nurse for 22 years. She retired from that for, I think, seven years, and she didn't work for those seven years. My dad had a company. She didn't work. Well, she wanted to go back to do some part-time adjunct teaching, so she went back to a community college and taught nursing for a few years, and then eventually just turned into that into a full-time career where she spent another 17 years working uh, as an instructor. And so she just retired, she's drawing Social Security, she's got a pension from the school. My dad retired, he's got Social Security, and he has a small uh, income from other things he does. He, he works in sales, and he does, uh, he works at a funeral home part-time, friend of his owns one. And so I'm seeing it play out in real time like, what it means to be retired in America and the financial decisions you have to make. You know, they're trying to downsize and all that stuff, but uh, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where 
you know, you're getting older in age and you're having to make really tough financial decisions. You know, you've seen kids have to move back in with mom and dad, right, because of how hard it is financially. You're going to see mom and dad moving in with the kids, you know, because that's where they're at. I mean, if you don't have anything but Social Security when you retire, you've, you've messed up. And so this is me telling you that you need to do something more proactive besides thinking about Social Security for retirement. Imagine you graduate and start a new job. They offer you a 6% 401k match. A 401k is basically a retirement tool that allows you to generally just invest in the stock market in a number of ways, and you have some control over that. We'll talk about that. A 6% match is a 100% interest return on your money. So if I put up 100 bucks, they put up 100 bucks. It's a 100% return. This is free money. So you decide to save $50 a week or $200 a month. I know $200 can be a lot of money. It feels like it's a lot of money to you guys. It's a lot of money to me. But, you know, look what happens. Now because of the match, you're getting $400 a month or $4,800 a year because of that decision to save 50 a week. After 10 years with no interest, let's assume you get no interest, it's $48,000. At 7% interest, it grows to $71,000. That's a huge difference. And then in the same time frame, and, uh, or in that same time frame, over a 40-year career, it's $1.025 million at 7% interest. And so look at what happens just by that $50 a week commitment. And that's a 401k? That's a 401k with 7% interest doing a $50 a week with a, with a match on that. And so that's just one example. There's a bunch of examples we can look at, but that's a small thing to do. Say, so I'm going to put 50 bucks a week right out of the gate. And let me tell you this. If you do it right out of the gate when you get your first job and don't think about it, you know, don't think about, you know, you'll never miss that money, you know. When I got my doctorate, I got a raise. Um, it was a small raise, but it was 200 bucks a month. And right after I got it, I started a separate 401k. It's, uh, it's called something a little different, but that $200 has been going ever since, and I've increased it over time. And so um, that's the kind of stuff I'm working towards now. So we'll discuss the magic of compound interest soon. That's another big topic I want to talk about. Einstein, everybody know who Albert Einstein is? He says this compound interest is one of the most powerful entities in the universe because basically what happens is your money and your savings grows on top of itself. Let's say you got 100, 100 bucks at 6% interest annually. Well, next year you've got $106, right? Right? So the next year after that, you're getting interest on 106 versus just the 100. So it just keeps compounding on top of itself and it becomes a snowball effect. It becomes very powerful. So saving is such a powerful tool did you know that over half of Americans do not have $1,000 saved that they can access in case of an emergency? Over half, 60, 70%. I've seen some numbers as high as 70%. Situations arise all the time that require cash, flat tires, illness, computer breaks down, things like that, you know, kid needs whatever, you know, these things happen. Your first goal as a saver needs to be getting to 1,000 bucks. That just needs to be something that you say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this happen, even if it's 20 bucks a month. You know, 20 bucks a month turns into what? 240 a year, you know? So it might take you a couple years to get there, but there's things you can do. Open a separate bank account if you have to, to keep that money separate. Get a second job if you need to. You know, even if it's, I tell you, it's not a good way to do it. Stuff like selling stuff on eBay, you know? That kind of, yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody's got stuff around the house they don't use anymore. <laughs> yeah, what's that? That's what I do. I mean, yeah. Like Swap shop, yeah. Like, um, like I told you, I hurt myself when I was 27. 
My mentality was working in Cisco and I was making, I'm telling you, there were guys out there making $38 an hour. Yeah. I work for them and it's hard work, man. It's right. Work. Yeah. We're working between eight, 12 hours of work a day. Right. So Monday through Friday, my check was looking good. But, you know, my wife wasn't working. She was a nurse. She was pregnant with my second baby. Now, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'm going to work for you because that's how I spend people thing. You know, I'm going to work on my pay all the bills. Right, right. But now, when I, but I heard myself, I'm like, nah, you got to get yourself together. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I get them paid when I'm, I mean, I'm getting paid when I come to school. And I'm trying to, I'm not trying to say taking advantage, but they're paying for it. Right. So they go get it. You, know you got to do it, man. I yeah. You, I got a house that we bought it. I paid for it. And I fix it. I flip it. And I made four times that I paid for it. And That's right awesome. Now, every single month, I'm getting a payment. Yeah. Rent payment, and I put it on my savings. On my savings. So this guy's. And you know, I'm all about hustling. Yeah. You know, if I, if I see this, my computer, man, if she wanted it, yeah. and even prices. Right. Lewis has already got it figured out, guys, and I—I I, I mean that genuinely. Lewis is when I met Lewis, I mean he started telling me about himself. I said this guy's got it figured out, and he does. And I'm saying this not to float your ego, but you got there's still more for you to learn, still more for me to learn. But I got a lot of respect for you because you're out there doing it, man. You're actually an entrepreneur making it happen. And so, if Lewis keeps doing what he's doing, he's going to be a very wealthy person. And wealth is, is relative, you know. Like I, for me, wealth is money, but it's also time. If you've got money, you've got time. Because you can, if you've got you know, 500 million bucks saved, you can say, you know what, I'm going to take a year off and just live. You know, I'm going to spend you know, $3,000 or $4,000 a month. I'm going to just relax and, and, and enjoy my time. And so money and time are like such powerful things. Um, look for ways to reduce expenses. So I mentioned the eBay thing. You, know, you, can, you can sell some things around the house. I guarantee if I wanted to, I could raise 500 or, or 1,000 bucks selling stuff around the house in a week or two on eBay. Look for ways to reduce expenses. If you've got um, bills that you're not, you know, everybody's probably got subscriptions they don't use as much, you know, trimming that Hulu maybe or Amazon Prime or something. Uh, there's ways that you can look at reducing your overhead. And, you know, even if it's just 20, 30 bucks a month, that's powerful. Uh, eating out just one week, one time a week less, things like that. Saving money can become a healthy habit, and it's so important. Um, but saving is not enough. Investing is a necessity due to inflation. And so we're going to talk about that too. Um, so when inflation, as the money supply increases, so do prices of goods and services. And so this is basically supply and demand, and I'll talk about that in a second. Remember the stories about the Hershey bar costing a nickel and now they're a dollar? My mom tells me about her going to the movies, and she could go with a quarter and she was rich with a quarter. She could go watch like two movies, candy, drink, and popcorn with just one quarter because everything was like a nickel. Movies a nickel, other movies a nickel, candy, drink, and popcorn, nickels, right? And then, you know, it was just a different time, but money was a lot more valuable back then. I mean, those, a quarter was, wow, I've got a quarter. I'm, I'm big balling, right? And so it's not that things become more expensive. This money has lost its buying power over time due to inflation. As we increase the supply of money, trillions and trillions of dollars floating around, people look at that in business and say, you know what, people are throwing all kinds of mad cash at me, and then I'm taking that cash and trying to go buy my stuff, and the people on the other end want more, and so I need more to make my stuff work, and so prices go up. You know, you just see this year after year, this price increase, and it's really supply and demand at play. If we have a lot of something, demand goes down. You know, if it's just an abundance of something, whatever it may be, people tend not to want it as much. You know, they, they tend not to value it. Um, remember Beanie Babies? Anybody remember those things? Little stuffed animals? 
I got a couple in my office to use as an example. I should have brought one with me. There was one time that there was a scarcity mentality about Beanie Babies. In fact, eBay was invented for Beanie Babies. Did you know that? The guy that started Beanie Babies, him and him and his wife were collectors. They started eBay as a way to exchange Beanie Babies. So there was a scarcity mentality. Oh, my God, you know, you must get the new release Beanie Baby. And there was a, a book I've got in my office called The Beanie Baby. Uh, what is it about? It's basically about uh, how scarcity uh, is artificial sometimes and how we go through this mass hysteria over certain things, and it's really just delusion. Um, it was called the, ba the Beanie Baby Bubble. That's the name of the book. Really interesting, and the guy who started Beanie Babies was crazy obsessed with perfection when it comes to these little dolls. And so uh, the, the, the highest-selling Beanie Baby of all time sold for $10,000. Wow. So you're giving up ten grand to buy a little toy doll because there was this perception of value. But where do you go from there? Do you think you can sell it for 15 or 20 grand? Is somebody going to pay that? Remember, things are only as valuable as somebody's willing to offer you money for it, right? And so the bubble burst. Beanie Babies are now worth very little. You can get tubs of them on eBay for 50 bucks. You know, you get, you know, they're worth about a quarter, 50 cent a piece. My parents still have probably 200 Beanie Babies, and they've just been giving them away to kids. You know, I've got a couple in my office that I thought were neat, and I use them as an example. So. All right, well, this was my first kind of attempt into talking about money, and I hope you got something out of it. There's a lot to talk about, and we'll be talking about things in the future like 401Ks. We'll talk about stocks, what they are. We'll talk about bonds. We'll be talking about all aspects of money, credit cards, and I hope that you get something out of it because it's valuable information. If you guys have any questions about anything, please let me know. Don't forget your homework with student night. You should chapter two, right? It's uh, actually chapter one. So chapter one, homework's due tonight. It's, it's on Moodle. It's on Moodle, that's correct. All right, guys, well, I appreciate your time. You have a good weekend, and I'll see you on Monday, okay?